Well, if you'll find a Bible, you're going to need it. You can use your phone if you'd like. Uh, of course, real Christians use a real Bible. Amen? Amen. Just kidding. Just kidding. Totally joking. That's page 938, Titus chapter 2, page 938 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. We're going to dive into Titus 2 in just a moment. What we started last week was a three-week series on the short epistle of Titus. Did Titus 1 last week, 2 this week, 3 next week. And I said last week is that Paul's primary concern in this letter to his young friend, Titus, is that a right or healthy doctrine leads to a right or healthy life. And healthy, in that sense, doesn't mean physical health, but spiritual health. This is the main theme, the main thrust of, of the whole book. I said last week, these two phrases are all over the book. Sound doctrine and good works. Sound doctrine and good works. We're going to see it in our text this morning. There's a way in which these things are intimately connected. Sound doctrine produces good works. And truly good works are a result of sound or healthy doctrine. Paul even begins the letter this way. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, he says, He's an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge in the truth, which accords with godliness. So this faith, this knowledge, accords with or corresponds to, is in relationship with godliness. Godliness. True faith results in true godliness. True knowledge of Christ leads to Christ-likeness. Healthy doctrine results in a healthy life or spiritual life. And when I say healthy doctrine, let me just quickly say, the idea under sound doctrine or healthy doctrine isn't um, all the opinions we may have on every doctrinal issue. It's the things that are, that, are, that are around the gospel. It's the things that make up the gospel. It's the things that you have to hold on to, embrace, and believe to be a Christian. We talk about three levels of doctrine around here. First level things are things like the Trinity, the authority of the Bible, the person and work of Christ, salvation by grace alone through faith alone, and on and on I could go. The visible return of Jesus. These are things that are first order doctrines that if you don't believe these things, you're not a Christian yet. Second order doctrines are like baptism or church government. Third order doctrines are things like the end times or eschatology. Sound doctrine, the things you have to hold on to to be healthy, to be alive and growing as a Christian, are those first order things. So I never want to assume that you have to have my view of baptism to be a healthy and growing Christian. Or my view of the end times to be a healthy and growing Christian and to have good works in your life. So that's not the point. The point in this whole letter of when it says sound doctrine, Paul says sound doctrine, these are the things around the gospel. The things without which there wouldn't be a gospel. The holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, redemption in Christ, right? The consummation of all things. These things, if we embrace them, we will then in turn start to live a different kind of life. This healthy doctrine creates a healthy spiritual life. So, chapter 2 is our assignment for today. What's going to start happening in chapter 2 and down into chapter 3 is Paul starts to describe what this healthy life should look like, this healthy Christian life. This section, chapter 2, verse 1, down through chapter 3, verse 8, is actually two different units that are parallel. Well, Paul Paul is essentially doing the same thing. In, In both units, he's describing right Christian behavior, 
roots this behavior in the gospel, and then he closes with a charge to Titus to teach these things with authority. So 1 through 10, 2, 1 through 10, Paul describes right Christian behavior. Then 2, 11 through 14, he roots this behavior in the gospel. And then verse 15, he says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So he closes this section and then later in verse 8, with a charge to Titus to teach these things with authority. Now, Titus 2 is our assignment. We're going to look at the first section of this unit, 2, 1 through 3, 8. Next week we'll do chapter 3. We'll look at the second part of this unit. Both, again, are saying the same thing. Paul's doing the same thing in both, but he's putting different particulars before us in each section. So, chapter 2, we're going to see three things. Verse 1, we're going to see Paul's instructions for Titus. If you're taking notes, here's our outline. Chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to see Paul's instructions for Titus. Then we're going to see Paul's instructions to groups in the church, verses 2 through 10. Paul's instructions to groups in the church, verses 2 through 10. And then, 3, Paul's motivating reason for why these instructions should be obeyed. The reason why these instructions should be obeyed, verses uh, obeyed, verses 11 through 15. So 1, instructions for Titus. Two, instructions to groups in the church. Three, why we should obey these instructions. Number one, verse one, we see Paul's instructions for Titus. Chapter two, verse one. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. But as for you, teach what accords with with sound doctrine. The word but is meant to signal a contrast that is, that is happening here. Paul's drawing a contrast from or between the people he's just mentioned in verses 15 and 16, these who profess to know God but deny Him by their works, and Titus. Paul's drawing a contrast between the false teachers and a true teacher, namely Titus. He's saying, they're doing this, Titus, but you must do this. What's the thing that Titus must do? But, as for you, Titus, verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Paul tells Titus to tell these churches what kind of life corresponds to or accords with sound doctrine. Notice that he doesn't say, Titus, teach sound doctrine. He's already said that. Over in verse 9 of chapter 1, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. So he's not saying that. He's saying something different and more specific. He's saying teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, Titus must teach these churches what kind of life sound doctrine creates or produces. Again, sound doctrine is really healthy doctrine. The word sound literally is the word healthy. It's the word from it's a word from the medical field, meaning healthy. So healthy doctrine is teaching it as good and true and right. It's in accord with the gospel and the apostles' teaching. It's healthy because it promotes life within Christians and within churches. Unsound or unhealthy teaching makes Christians sick and churches sick and weak and diseased and eventually dead. So sound or healthy doctrine must be taught and 
how we live out of that doctrine must be taught. This section, Paul begins to focus on the how we live part. He starts discussing, discussing lots of behaviors from different groups of people. I want to say one quick thing before we get into the, the ethical instruction. We need to remember that these behaviors that Paul's about to address are rooted in the sound doctrine of verse 1. The, the, the ethical implications are rooted in the doctrine. Many will often accuse the apostles of rooting their teachings in the first century. You know, so they don't really apply anymore because they're culturally irrelevant. Or they're just man's opinion. Have you ever heard that before? The Bible's just man's opinion. Well, no, Paul is saying you need to teach sound doctrine, and then the life that corresponds to that is rooted in sound doctrine, not in first century culture or in man's opinion. Our behaviors are rooted in sound doctrine. This is why all Christians should study theology. Amen? You don't have to go to seminary to study theology. We have a church library full of lots of good books on theology. This is why you should get together with friends and study books of the Bible and read books about the Bible together. If you don't know what the Bible says, your life could be governed by your ideas about God or your parents' and grandparents' ideas or the culture's ideas about how you should live. For example, if you don't see in the New Testament the necessity of the local church you probably won't feel any, any need to be connected to one. So, sound doctrine roots us in, or excuse me, our life is rooted in sound doctrine, what the Bible says, what we believe shapes how we live. If what we believe isn't sound, isn't firmly rooted in Scripture, then an unhealthy and ultimately deadly spiritual life will be the result. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you to please pray that sound doctrine would be taught and preached here at Preston Highlands Baptist Church. Pray for the preaching and teaching of the Word. Pray that God would give you a desire to grow in your understanding of His Word, that the Bible would be something that's like a treasure to you, that's sweet as honey, that's not something you dust off on Sundays, but something that's a central part of your life. Pray that you would be able to have relationships with Uh, relationships with other brothers and sisters where doctrine is not off limits, where doctrine is discussed and loved and cherished and obeyed and applied. Brothers and sisters, again, read the Bible together. Read good books together. Read books that will help you understand and apply the truths of the Bible. Sound doctrine is what will create a healthy life. Therefore, we need to know sound doctrine. That's number one. These are Paul's instructions to Titus. Number two, Paul then in verse two begins giving instructions to lots of different groups in the church. Verses two through ten are instructions about how sound doctrine should shape different groups within the church. So let's read these verses, then we'll look at them one by one. Chapter two, verse two. Older men <laughs> are to be sober minded, dignified self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, 
pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. There is a lot here. We're going to try to get into as much of it as we can. Here we go. First, Paul begins with older men. The first group within the church he addresses are older men. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what older and younger is. I think you know whether you're older or younger. I don't know where the line is. The first group is older men. He says that first they're to be sober-minded. This means clear-headed. They view themselves, the world, and culture, their families through the clear lens of Scripture. They have a clarity of thought about things around them. They're sober-minded. Next, they're supposed to be dignified. Dignified. Older men aren't to be flashy and showy and crude. Older men should have a decorum about them. Not a, uh, you know... Pretension, I'm better than you, but a dignity. They should carry themselves, not with pride, but with distinction. Their age should win the respect of others. This is super countercultural, by the way. A lot of you in the room are, are, are not of the older variety. So listen carefully, my younger brothers and sisters. This is countercultural. Proverbs 16.31 says, Gray hair is a crown of glory. Amen? It is gained in a righteous life. Old age, according to the Bible, brings dignity in and of itself. Not based on accomplishment, young people. Not based on how much money you have or what kind of house you live in. But based on the fact that you have gray hair. That you're older. There are things that those older than us know that we don't know. They've learned lessons that we haven't learned yet. In a culture that glorifies youth, we need to remember that God says that old people have a wisdom and even a glory that young people don't have. Young people, let me encourage you to show all honor to older people in our congregation. A practical way to do this is when you come in here on Sunday, don't go directly to your seat. Go talk to someone older than you. Encourage them. Get to know them. See how they are. Stop pretending they're not there. They're there, and they have dignity. Self-control is the next thing that Paul mentions here in verse 2. Older men should be self-controlled. This is similar to being dignified. A dignified man is a self-controlled man. 
He must also, it says, be sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Interestingly, you can have the previous three things and not be a Christian. You can have sober-mindedness, dignity, and self-control, but not be a Christian necessarily. But a Christian must have the next three. Sound faith, sound love, sound in steadfastness. An older man must be health, an older Christian man must be healthy or sound in faith, love and steadfastness. A, a healthy faith is one that stays strong even as the body and mind weakens. You might turn to 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. This is one of my favorite passages in the Corinthian letters. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. This is for all of us, I think especially for those older. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. A healthy faith faith stays strong even as your body becomes weak. Your inner man becomes strong as your outer self withers. We might often pray for people's physical needs at the end of life. Let me encourage you also to pray for people's spiritual needs at the end of life. When someone is growing older and getting close to the end of their life, we should remember that they're thinking about things and facing things that we haven't faced yet. Getting old and coming to the precipice of eternity, preparing to meet the God who made them, certainly brings a measure of fear or anxiety. Now in Christ, of course, there's no deep-seated fear but just imagine laying in a bed. I'm thinking of my grandmother right now. She's 93 years old. She can't do anything for herself, literally. She's just waiting to step into eternity. So one of the things I pray for her is not healing because I don't know that the Lord wants to do that. Maybe He wants to raise her up and give her 10 more years. I don't know. But what I pray for her is for a faith that will make her ready to go to sleep and open her eyes and see Jesus. A faith that is ready for that longing for that. A faith so strong that she can lay there in a room and not even be able to watch TV, heaven forbid, right? Not even be able to see barely or talk and just be content because she knows what's coming. She's ready. We should pray for someone's faith to finish well. We should pray that 2 Timothy 4, 6-7 is said at all of our funerals, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, Paul said. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's what I want preached at my funeral. So whoever's going to do it? Susie? Susie's going to preach? We can talk about that later. Who's going to do it? Preach that. I hope that's true of me. It only will be by the grace of God. We want that said at our funeral. We have fought the good fight. We have finished the race. We have kept the faith. We're still holding on to Jesus, even though we can't hold on to anything else. 
older brothers and sisters, pray for grace to end your race with strong and healthy faith, strong and healthy love, strong and healthy steadfastness. Because you know that these seen things are fading away, but the unseen things are eternal and they're about to be yours. So that's his word to older men. Next is older women. Verse 3, older women, likewise, he says, first, to be, they're to be reverent in behavior. The word reverent refers to behavior appropriate in a temple setting. If you've ever visited a famous cathedral or maybe even just a fancy church, I guess, you feel something in those kind of places. There's an appropriate way you act when you go inside those places. There's no foolishness or silliness. So Paul is saying that an older woman's behavior, their demeanor, must reveal that she belongs to God. She has a right sense of the holiness of God. Her life makes it clear that God is holy and she is not. And, and, and more importantly, perhaps, or as a result of that, I should say, her life reveals that she has walked with this God for a long time. There's a demeanor. There's a demeanor about it. doesn't mean she's never fun to be around, never jokes, that she's always somber and boring. One of the reasons I love this older woman right here, I love you, Rose, is because you're so fun to be around, but you carry yourself with a dignity. Older women should have a life that makes it clear that they know God and have walked with Him for a long time. They should not be slanderers, the text says. The word for slanderer is diabolus, the word for Satan. They shouldn't be like Satan. They shouldn't be lying about people and tearing people down in unfair and untrue ways. They shouldn't be slaves to much wine. Heavy drinking was considered a virtue on the island of Crete. Our culture is also addicted to alcohol. The question here is not whether we can or could drink alcohol at any point. The word is slave. The key word is slave. Don't be a slave to alcohol. Don't let alcohol own you. You should be able to live without it. You don't look to, to alcohol to, to wash away your fears and your pains and your regrets and your guilt and your shame. You're not a slave to those things. You're a slave to Jesus Christ. On the contrary, an older woman is to teach what is good. Verse 3. Teach what is good. End of verse 3. And then beginning of verse 4. So train the young women. Teach and train. Women can and should have a teaching ministry in the church. And I'm not an egalitarian, but that's what the Bible says. Women teach and train young women. This isn't referring to an official teaching position like an elder or a pastor. The pictures of the older women in the church who are experienced in life and marriage and raising kids and work, and everything else, they're, they're taking the younger women in the congregation under their wing, and they're helping them, they're encouraging them, they're praying for them. So older women of our church, I'd encourage you to ask God to show you a young lady in our church for you to start meeting with regularly for prayer and encouragement and teaching. Just pick one and don't wait for them to reach out to you. You reach out to them. This is the command of Scripture. Older women do this. Teach, train younger women. Give them a call. 
See how they're doing. See if they want to come over for a meal or grab coffee. And look, I get everyone's busy. It's not a good excuse because everyone has it. Everyone's busy. Are you too busy to do what the Bible tells you to do? Everyone's busy, but we all choose our priorities. Older women teach and train younger women. Become someone's spiritual mother. Our culture often ignores and sidelines older people. Interesting, what Paul's doing here is he's saying, no, 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 no. They're not on the sidelines. Bring them out here. They have a strategic ministry in the local church. We need you. We need you. You may be retired from your career. You're not retired from ministry. Don't hoard your knowledge. Pass it on to younger women who need the advice of someone with greater experience. Now, younger women, you have to be willing to receive the help of an older woman. You have to be teachable. You can't assume that you don't need anyone else's help. That's spiritual suicide. It's true for all of us, by the way. If you assume that you don't need anyone's help, you've just committed spiritual suicide. By the way, I don't know if you can be a Christian because being a Christian means admitting I can't save myself. I look outside of myself to the Lord Jesus to come in and help me, save me from me. So by definition, a Christian is someone who looks outside of themselves and says, help, 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 please, help. Help, I'm dying over here. I got kids. I got a husband who's crazy. I got whatever. I got work. Please help. Amen. I just help. I need help. If you're not willing to do that, then you just look at your heart. Older women can't teach younger women who don't want to be taught, who assume that they already know everything they need to know. Both older and younger women should take initiative in this. Don't wait for the other person to reach out. You be bold. You be courageous. You prayerfully and humbly take some risk and initiative and ask someone to go have coffee. Ask someone to go for a walk. Ask later this fall when it's not a billion degrees outside. Ask someone to go have lunch. You be the one to take initiative. This is a needed ministry in our church and it can't be done by men. Older women teach and train younger women. Now, what are the older women supposed to teach and train the younger women in? Well, verses 4 and 5 go on to tell us. First, verse 4, to love their husbands and children. To love their husbands and children. Interestingly, starting with this one and into the next qualities that Paul lists here, they all revolve around... um, a woman's attitude and her conduct in the home and with her family. God's prioritizing of the family couldn't be clearer. God's prioritizing of the family couldn't be clearer. Love their husbands. Teach them to love their husbands and children. Verse 5, he says to teach them to be self-controlled and pure. These words are related to one another, and both of them have the idea of chastity or sexual purity. Teach and train young women to walk in sexual fidelity and purity. Then he says that they must be trained in working at home. Working at home. This can be translated 
to be good managers of the household. Paul gives similar counsel to young widows over in 1 Timothy 5.14. He says there, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So work at home is really parallel to this idea of managing the home. Now this caveat here, before I say more, this doesn't mean that working outside of the home is off limits. Proverbs 31 says clearly that an excellent wife considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. I think that's sewing terminology. I'm not really sure about that. She, she sews things. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. And then at the end of Proverbs 31, we learn that none of this work takes her away from managing her household because verse 27 says, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. So there's no no dichotomy between, you, you know, if you work inside the home, you can't work outside the home. Proverbs 31 suggests that you can actually do both well. The very end of the chapter, verse 28, says her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. I know it's Father's Day, but I want to do this. I love you, Susie. You do an excellent job. Managing our house, putting up with me, working trying to make money for us so that we can pay our bills and serving in ways that people don't know. I praise you and give God praise for you. There's no dichotomy here that says you have to do, a woman has to only be in the home, has to only do work inside the home. The instruction that Paul gives, that he says older women should give to the younger women, is that women are responsible for the domestic oversight of the home. Women are responsible for the domestic oversight of the home. This doesn't mean that they'll do all the domestic things that need to be done. It just means that their managers was the word he used. Managers or administrators, directors, supervisors of the home. Now, often in our culture, that's viewed as a demotion. But just think for a moment about the terminology the Bible is using. When we think of an administrator of a college or a university or a manager of a successful business, um, administrator of a Fortune 500 company, we don't think about those kinds of people as incompetent people. No, only the most skilled and wise and diligent people are called upon to manage organizations. You don't hire just anybody to run something. Amen? This is no demotion. This is no demotion. This is, in a sense, exalting the place of a woman managing, supervising, administrating her home. Is there any more important organization than the family? caring for young souls, creating spaces of warmth and peace, organizing a home that will bless others in Jesus' name. 
is more important than managing a business or a school. And this is the work that Paul tells older women to train the younger women in. I know this is a hard teaching, and I know you have questions. I know if you're a a lady who's working outside the home, you may hate what I'm saying right now, or at least at best struggle with it. You may be struggling with this teaching. I want you to know, man, Susie and I have struggled with this. We have struggled with how this applies to our situation. We've wrestled with it for all 13 years of our marriage. There's no blueprint that tells us how this has to work or has to look for everyone. Different families will, to state the obvious, look differently. The way that wives balance work outside the home with work inside the home is left open to each family. But in a culture that chafes at the notion that God designed men and women with different roles, we have an opportunity here as Bible-believing Christians to show the world a better and more beautiful way. We have the opportunity to create, create homes where kids and parents are deeply connected and not farmed out. Homes of peace and productivity, not chaos and consumption. We have an opportunity here to be a witness for Jesus Christ in the way that our homes are organized. And as long as some basic principles are in place, it's okay if your organization looks a little differently than mine. But we have a real opportunity to show our neighbors and the world something beautiful if we will admit that God does indeed design men and women equal in worth but with different roles. I was just joking with someone in the hallway, I forget who it was now, but when something goes wrong with our kids, I'm a wreck. Without this one, I don't know what our children would do. It's a beautiful thing when God puts a man and a woman together and gives them different functions, complementary functions, complementing functions. Husbands, let me ask some questions now. Husbands. Husbands, are you willing to do whatever necessary to make this kind of life possible for your wife? Wives, wives, is it your chief desire to build a career or to build a home? Is it your chief desire to build a career or to build a home? Single men, I didn't forget about you guys. Single men, are you looking for a wife with biblical convictions about the home? And are you willing, willing, and eventually, if not now, able to provide for a wife and children? Single women. Are you looking for a husband with biblical convictions about the home? Are you wanting to build a career or a home? The way that we do this, the way wives and mothers carry out their responsibilities at home is a serious matter. Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 5. Train them to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. I should say, by the way, 
um, submission there is to their own husband, not to every man in general. But then the end of verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. The way we carry out these things will say something about the gospel. The ordering of our homes should serve to promote the gospel. Disorder in the home can revile the gospel. So these are serious matters. And husbands, husbands and wives, these are so serious that it's worth having awkward conversations about. It's worth having hard conversations about these things. Because we may either promote or revile the gospel according to this text. Paul goes on to say that the older women should teach the younger women to be kind and submissive to their own husbands. Again, their own, in verse 5, their own husbands indicate that the submission is not of one gender to another, but of the wife to her husband. Notably, Paul never says, husbands, please listen carefully. Paul never says that a husband can or should demand submission. He always instructs the wife to give it. Now, God knows that younger women will struggle through these things. You know what else he knows? He knows that older women also struggled with with these things. This is why the instruction is here for older women to teach and train the younger women. The questions and concerns and fears that young ladies have aren't new. Older ladies had them too. In God's goodness and God's wisdom, he gives ladies, young ladies, help right here in this text. He says, older women, help young ladies think through this stuff. Teach, train, encourage, pray, help them along in these things. One of the best gifts to the church is intergenerational relationships. This is why I, I don't want to be known as a young church or an old church, because that misses some really beautiful gospel-created opportunity. Intergenerational relationships say this. It says that the church needs younger and older. Younger need the older. Older need the younger. The gospel is what creates and unites the church, not social similarities. It's natural and okay to connect with people in your stage of life. But the gospel says you not only connect with people in your stage of life, you're fundamentally connected to people in other stages of life. This is one of the things that can make a church look so beautiful. When you start having friends who look nothing like you. (laughs) The gospel creates this. The church is called a family for a reason. We're all different Yet we're one and we need each other. Different, one, need each other. Intergenerational relationships are part of God's plan and a gift from God to His church. Now, younger men is the next group. Younger men, he says very quickly, the instruction he gives is simple. Be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. Now, young men, you're like, well, that's easy. No, No, he didn't give this long list, interestingly, because I think this covers almost everything. Control yourself. Yourself, what what does that embody? Everything about you. Control yourself. Control your words, your actions, your thoughts, your sexual desires, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time. Control yourself. 
Control yourself, young men. Don't be slaves to this, that, or the other. Control yourselves. Then verse 7 and 8 connect back to verse 6. Titus says there, or Titus, Paul says there that Titus is to teach the young men by word and example. Show yourself in all respects to be a good model or to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Titus's example is meant to spread to the other young men in the church. So it is with the example of our elders. Our elders are far from perfect, but our life and doctrine should have an attractiveness, attractiveness to them that makes others want to follow them. Now next, Paul addresses slaves or bondservants. Your translation may use either word, slave or bondservant. The fact that Paul even talks directly to these people, slaves or bondservants, was radically countercultural. Cultural. In his day, any discussion about household management focused on how masters should treat their, uh, treat their slaves. The slaves weren't even given the time of day in contemporary discussions about the home or, or the church. But Paul gave slaves the time of day. Paul saw them as people. He saw them as ethically responsible persons who were just as much members of the church as were their masters. Now, I will say quickly, slavery in Paul's day wasn't like chattel slavery in antebellum America. It just wasn't like that. It wasn't an ideal situation, but it wasn't necessarily evil either. These slaves, unlike slaves in our country's history, had rights and privileges. They could worship, they could marry, they could save money, they could even purchase their freedom eventually. Slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on skin color. So when you hear slave, you're going to immediately think something. I promise you what you're thinking is probably not what the Bible's thinking. Because Roman slavery was not like American slavery, it's fair to think, and many commentators have said that Texts like this, and there are a few of them in the New Testament, are better understood in terms of the, for our sake, our understanding, terms of the employee and employer relationship. Someone who works for someone else. In this light, Paul says that employees should submit to their employees in everything. Of course, not if it contradicts the Word of God, but they should be submissive. They should be well-pleasing. Christian employees should want to please their employers. They're not to be argumentative. Christian employees don't argue with their superiors. They don't always have to be right or have the last word. They work with humility. They're not pilfering. What a great word. Who's used the word pilfering this week? (laughs) Pilfering. Stealing is what it means. They're not thefts. They're not thieves. Christian employees don't steal from their companies. Rather, they show all good faith. Christian employees prove by their behavior at work that they're trustworthy. Why is this important? End of verse 10. So that, here's the purpose clause. Do all of this, slaves, employees, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul links the behavior of employees with with the reputation of the gospel. The way we work should make the gospel as attractive as possible for those we work with. Listen to how John Piper explains this in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. I remember reading this as a college student, and it's always stuck with me. I'd never seen this verse before until Piper brought it out. Listen to what he says about this verse. He says, quote, 
the way we do our work adorns the doctrine of God. In other words, our work is not the beautiful woman, but the necklace. The beautiful woman is the gospel, the doctrine of our God and Savior. So, he says, one crucial meaning of our secular work is that the way we do it will increase or decrease the attractiveness of the gospel we profess before unbelievers. Of course, he says, the great assumption is that they know we are Christians. The whole point of the text breaks down if there's nothing for our work to adorn. Thinking that our work will glorify God when people do not know we are Christians is like admiring an effective ad on TV that never mentions the product. People may be impressed but won't know what to buy. End quote. So the way we work will make the gospel look more beautiful or more ugly. So at work, we don't cut corners. We don't grumble and complain about our boss, even though everyone else is. We're on time. We do our work with excellence. We seek the good of the company and not just our own self-promotion. We seek to serve our employees and not just see them as the competition. We work in such a way that people take notice. And we work in such a way that helps people connect the dots between our Christianity and our work ethic. So, in verses 2 through 10, Paul has addressed different groups within the church. Old men, old women, young men, young women, bondservants or slaves. That was number 2, his instructions for different groups within the church. Now, finally, number 3, in verses 11 through 14, he gives us the reason why we should follow these instructions. He roots these behaviors in the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he grounds the Christian life in the work of God through Jesus Christ. How do I know that first word of verse 11? For, he gives all these instructions to all these people. For, because, why should older women do this? Old men do this? Young men, young women? Why should you do all this stuff? For, The grace of God has appeared. Christians should live, as Paul instructs, because of the grace of God. And this grace is for all people, bringing salvation for all people. Now, some have understood this to mean that eventually all people are going to be saved, or what's called universalism, but the Scriptures clearly teach elsewhere that not everyone will be saved. So this phrase must mean something else. This phrase is better understood to mean that God offers salvation to all people. So the grace of God has appeared for anyone who will receive it. If you have received it, then your life will start looking, if you backtrack into the first part of the chapter, your life will start looking differently. Now, verse 12 then says that that grace that has appeared, that grace from God, doesn't just save us from sin. It also trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. 
I love the way the NIV translates. The NIV says, it teaches us, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodly and worldly things. A person who's received the grace of God has a new desire and ability to refuse or renounce things that aren't pleasing to God. Verse 13 goes on to say that those who've received the grace of God are waiting patiently for the return of Christ. I'd love to just preach this verse, but for the sake of time, I won't. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Those who say that the Bible never calls Jesus God, well, there it is. There it is. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But the first word of the verse is important for us. Waiting. 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 Do you love waiting? Do you love waiting? In a world of drive throughs and smartphones and everything at our, our fingertips immediately almost. We don't like waiting. But here it seems that Paul puts the whole Christian life under this word, waiting, waiting. Now, waiting doesn't mean sit there and like do nothing. Do you remember all the other stuff we just read? <laughs> Get to work. Do this, that, and the other. Be here you're supposed to be. Waiting, waiting, waiting. We're not waiting for retirement. We're not waiting for a promotion. We're not waiting for a sabbatical. We're not waiting for a better house. We're not waiting for a marriage. We're not waiting for kids. We're waiting, the text says, for our blessed hope. (laughs) Our blessed hope. Isn't that a beautiful way to describe the Lord Jesus and His coming? Our blessed hope. We're waiting for His return. We're waiting for the glorious return of Christ. Are you waiting? Are you waiting? Are you eagerly waiting to see His face? Has His glory that you've seen in His Word so captivated your life that you can't wait to see Him face to face? I hope so. Verse 14 says that the new life that this grace creates is rooted in an expectation of not only Jesus' return, but also Jesus' atonement. This one who's coming also came and gave Himself, verse 14, to redeem us and to purify us. He redeems us from sin. He paid the debt that we owed. And He's purified us. He's cleansed us. You see, it's not enough for our sin just to be removed. To be in God's presence, we also, we also have to be perfect, the Bible says, or righteous. So in Christ, God not only takes away our sins, but then grants us righteousness. You have to have both or you don't get into heaven. We have to be made pure in order to enter God's presence. And in Christ, those who've trusted in Christ have been redeemed from lawlessness or sin and purified. And I know many of you don't feel pure. Can I get an amen? You're like, John, well, what about yesterday? What about last weekend? What about last year? What about that thing on that weekend and that trip and that? Here's what Jesus says. The friend of sinners, come to me, to me. If you'll confess your sin to him, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He doesn't want to just make you better. He wants to make you clean. 
wants to make you clean. And these people, notice that it's a people. It's not just a person. He's purified a people. This is why church is so important. We're not by ourselves out there floating around as individual Christians. We're a people that God has redeemed and purified and then made His own. A people for His own possession. God owns those He saves. And this is good news because God is good. He's good. He's not bad. He's good. He's a wise and good owner. And coming under His ownership compels us then, the end of the verse, compels us to give our lives for the good of others. This people are zealous for good works. His grace comes to us, forgives us, purifies us, makes us His own, and then compels us to do as much good as we can to as many people as we can. What can we do? What kind of good things can you do? Well, let me give you some examples. I'm going to try to be concrete here. You can babysit for some of the couples in your church. This is totally self-serving, by the way. You can babysit for young parents so that couples can go have a date night. Amen? This is a good work. You can do your work at work with excellence and joy. You can go visit homebound members of our church who are lonely and struggling. You can cook dinner for a friend who's swamped at work or with school. You can share the gospel with an unbeliever. Go on a mission trip to serve and encourage long-term missionaries. You can pray for your lost friends and family members. You can give faithfully to your local church. You can open up your home to people who are in need. By the way, Sue may hate me for this, but Sue needs a place to live. If you have an empty room, let her know. Open your house to someone in need. Pray through the membership directory. Take food to someone who's sick or grieving or a new parent. Read a good Christian book with a brother or sister in Christ. Help pay the tuition of a college or seminary student so they can avoid debt. Go visit the sick when they're in the, when the, when they're in the hospital. You can do that now. Volunteer at a pregnancy center. Talk with a friend who's going through a tough time. Don't just give them the, I'm praying for you, and then fail to engage them. Go talk with them, call them, see how they are. Move overseas to live amongst an unreached people group for the sake of Christ. Or husband, wash the dishes. Do some laundry. And on and on I could go. There are thousands of good works we can do. If we've received grace, been forgiven, been purified, waiting to see Jesus' face, part of His people, then we will, the text says, if that's you, if that's you, then you're, it says, zealous for good works. So if there's not a zeal, a passion, a joy, a happiness to serve and do whatever you can to help someone else, then you might not actually believe all this other stuff. There's a direct connection here. If you really believe the gospel, then you're going to do this stuff. This stuff results in this stuff. So coming to church is not enough. It starts there, but then our lives are changed by the word of God, and we're sent into the lives of so many people. We can't do everything. As a pastor, I feel this every day. We can't do everything, but you can do something. You can do something. What are you doing? Something to give your life for the good of others, for the sake of Christ. In zeal, you want to bring the love of Christ to bear on someone's life. And you can do it in a thousand ways.
The grace of God sets us free, sets us free from living for our little bitty lives, our little bitty selves. His grace makes us want to live for the good of others. So we've seen Paul's instructions for Titus. We've seen Paul's instructions to groups in the church. We've seen Paul's motivating reason for why these instructions should be obeyed. Again, to close, Paul's primary concern in this letter is to say that right beliefs create right life. A right life. Healthy doctrine creates a healthy life. And a healthy life is one lived for the joy and good of others. For Jesus' sake. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please take your word. Write it on our hearts. Help us to take away from here the things that we need to take. Help us to know and understand you and your word more deeply. And help us to live in ways that are more faithful to your word. As a result of the grace we've been given, may our lives be filled with good works. I pray that you would put it on the heart of every single person in the room this morning. Something that they can do to bless someone else. Would you, would you just guide and lead and give ideas, give creativity, give awareness, give knowledge, give what needs, what people need to get out of their self-centered life and start living for others. Lord, we pray that your grace would not be without effect in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.